Last Sunday we considered the final passage of this portion of John's Gospel known as the Upper Room Discourse. The Upper Room Discourse covers four chapters, chapters 13 through 16. Uh, really quite amazing, actually. 21 chapters in the Gospel of John, and four of them are devoted to just a few hours in the life of Christ. Chapters 13 through 16, and it chronicles how Jesus spent his final night before the cross, alone with uh, the original 12 disciples, 11 now that Judas uh, had left the, the, the room to betray Jesus, uh, the Lord is preparing them for what is to come. He's assuring them of his love while attempting to allay their many fears. As we've seen throughout this discourse, the 11 who remained with Jesus that night were worried, afraid, full of doubt, and deeply troubled. They were not rejoicing, hear this, they were not rejoicing in any way whatsoever, nor were they at peace. Still, with these great words of joy and peace, what Jesus said to them here eventually made all the difference in their lives. Because as we said last week, uh, though sorrow can overwhelm, Christ has overcome, and there is joy to be had and peace to be held as we hope in Him. And I know, again, we, we discussed this, I know, I know, because I, I know us, and I know that we are human, and I, and I know the human condition. So I know that, that in this room today, in this room are sorrows of many kinds. The trials of many kinds are represented right here. That even right now, this very moment, some of us are wrestling with deeply troubled hearts. And God, I mean, in this fact alone, we find great encouragement, don't we, that God deals honestly with our sorrows. And he points earnestly to our Savior. And he spoke to us even last week from his word with, with, with five specific truths that, that, that comfort us in our affliction and indeed shape our entire lives. And the truths are these. Again, this review. The truths are these. At present, we see only in part. Right? There's a, there's a great big picture there, and we just see a piece or two of it. Secondly, sorrow is certain. It is. But joy prevails. Third, Jesus brings us to the Father who loves us and gives joy to the full. Number four, 
Even when our faith fails, and it does, right? Even when our faith fails, God remains faithful still. And then fifth and finally, peace is found not in the absence of trouble, but in the presence and triumph of Christ. Today I want to unpack this last thought from verse 33 specifically. Jesus makes a stunning statement here about peace and how we find it. How he makes peace and gives peace, how he wants us to be at peace even in our sorrows because Jesus because Jesus has already overcome a fallen and sin-ravaged world, we can know peace that surpasses all earthly understanding and sustains through every trial and tribulation. So I want to read this together. Just one power-packed Statement. The final words. These are the final words of the upper room discourse. John 16, 33. Jesus said to them and now says to us, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Oh, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, once again we just acknowledge and recognize your goodness to us even this morning and that we gather today in this room downstairs with our children. We gather together as your, as your children, as the sheep of your pasture, and we gather in the very presence of our great shepherd. Will you please will you please minister to us today here now even in and through your word. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how your word is like it's like honey to our lips. It's like, it's like balm that soothes our souls. And oh, how we need our souls soothed today. So do your work among us and let each one of us know that we are in the presence of Almighty God the all-loving God, the all-knowing God,
and that nothing in our lives, not a single thing, not a single ache, not a single hurt, not a single worry is unknown by you, nor is it, nor are you unmoved. So come, God, we pray. And teach us great and mighty things that we might trust in you even more. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. I want to take this in three parts. I think here in verse 33, we see three things mainly. We see a world of tribulation. We see a Savior who triumphs. And we see a call to trust in Him. A world of tribulation. A Savior who triumphs. And a call to trust in Him. Our, uh, so, so a world of tribulation. Our world is filled with hurt and heartache. Our world is filled with hurt and heartache. Sorrow is certain. There's no avoiding this reality. These early followers of Christ would and did suffer in various ways, even as we do today. And Jesus uh, doesn't hide from this fact, nor did He hide it from them. Very clearly, He he said, in the world you will have tribulation. You will. In the world you will have tribulation. We live in a world of affliction, distress, trouble, and a- anguish, trials of many kinds. A world where injustice seems to have the upper hand, where crime runs rampant, where terrorist attacks are far too common. A world where the disadvantaged are taken advantage of, where the weak are preyed upon, where even little children are abused and terrorized, where, think about this, where anti-bullying is now having to be taught in our schools. We live in a world where, where people lack even the basic necessities of life, where thousands upon thousands go without food or water each day, where disease invades our bodies and destroys, where, where even the mere mention of cancer or, or Alzheimer's or even the Zika virus strikes fear into our hearts. A world where Christianity suffers persecution in ways that other religions do not, and where Christians themselves are are targeted, uh, tortured, uh, and, and even killed simply because they name the name of Jesus. In fact, so great... So great is, is, is the suffering in our world that, that seekers and skeptics alike look to, heaven, to the heavens and we wonder why. We wonder why God allows such things. 
and why he doesn't seem to intervene. Even the great theologians in history, throughout history, have admitted this. John Stott has said, for example, the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith and has been in every generation. Novelist Peter DeVries refers to the problem of pain as the question mark turned upside down, turned like a fish hook in the human heart. George Barna was, was once commissioned to survey a scientifically selected cross-section of adults, and his question for them was simple. If you could ask God only one question, just one, if you could ask God just one question and you knew he would give you an answer, what would you ask? And the top response, and it wasn't even close, the top response was, was equally simple. Why is there pain and suffering in the world? Why? Why is there suffering in the world? Well, it all traces back to this painful truth that we live in a fallen world where the devastating consequences of the fall still ravage our lives. We live in a world of fallen people who, though, though, though wonderfully created in the image of God, have collectively turned from God to go our own way, which is the essence of sin. And beginning with Adam and Eve, we have all sinned. We need to hear this. We need to own it. Uh, we have all, that means me, and you and the person sitting next to you and in front of you and behind you and across the room from you, we have all contributed to our painful plight. Every one of us, every single one of us, we have contributed to the suffering in our world. For apart from God, Apart from God, our very nature is sin-stained so that even the very best of us or even our very best efforts leave sin's mark wherever we go. The Bible teaches that sin brings death. Sin destroys us from the inside out. There's not a day go by, goes by where, where we do not see its devastating effects in our lives and in our world. Now, now, now we're told, this is Romans 8, that, that creation itself is, is in bondage and it's longing, it's groaning, it's waiting for its redemption. I just have to ask, if, if creation itself is in bondage, uh, in bondage to sin, if creation itself is groaning, uh, waiting for its redemption, if creation itself is just longing for the Redeemer, how much more are we in bondage 
as those who freely, willingly chose to turn from our Creator. How much more should we groan for our Redeemer? Into this world of tribulation stepped our triumphant Savior. Jesus overcame sorrow and suffering not by avoiding it, but by experiencing it firsthand, even by absorbing and enduring it to the fullest degree. I have overcome the world. He said to them, I have overcome. I have overcome. He said to them that that night and now says to us again this morning, to overcome is to defeat it's to win the victory. It's to, to conquer. To overcome is to triumph. And hear this. One cannot triumph from a distance at, at arm's length. No, you can't do that. One cannot triumph uh, in a detached fashion, in a way that just removes you from the real issue. One cannot triumph without getting personally involved. Listen, an army cannot triumph over its enemy. It cannot defeat its enemy unless and until it faces the enemy head on. And that's exactly what Jesus did. It's exactly what Jesus has done. He has overcome through his life and through his death and, and through his resurrection. God is not numb to the, to the problem of pain. He's not. He entered the fray. The eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, laid aside his rights as God and he left the infinite glories of heaven to save us from ourselves and from our sins and to rescue us from the terrible consequences of sin that, that, that ravage our lives today. When Jesus was born, the die was cast. And as he grew, so did the tension against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Throughout his life and ministry, the drama intensified, as did the hostility against him. He came. He came with healing. He came with hope. He came to help ease our many pains, and yet he was opposed at nearly every turn until finally the human race collectively turned against him, demanding his crucifixion and death, yet he was faithful, never deviating from the path that leads to our salvation. It all climaxed at the cross, where his life was not taken from him, but freely given by him where he absorbed all that Satan, the, the very representation of evil itself, all that Satan could throw at him, where the sinless one bore sin's curse for sinners like you and me, there he gave his life unto death so that those under sin's consequence of death could live for the everlasting joy, not in that moment, 
not in that moment, for the everlasting joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. Forsaken by the Father, who suffered immensely as well, by the way, forsaken by the Father, Jesus suffered in our place until at last he cried, finished. It is finished, he exclaimed, as he disarmed the rulers of this present darkness and, and put them to open shame, as he, as he took and canceled our record of sin debt and, and nailed it to the cross. And so we must ask ourselves, are you broken today? He was broken for you. Are you hurting today? He hurt unto death. Are you lonely today? He was abandoned by even his closest friends. Do you sometimes wonder where God is and, and why God allows such pain? He understands completely. Because in those terrible moments, compelled by God's love, for a lost and fallen humanity in those terrible moments, he was forsaken. Forsaken. So that we wouldn't be. And this he endured not because he had to, because he chose to. Tim Keller has rightly said, God takes our misery and our suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. What looked like his supreme defeat was in fact his supreme triumph. I want you to hear this, please. Hear this. God's answer to human suffering is found at the cross of Jesus Christ. Not a, not a, not a philosophical answer. but in the answerer himself. Christus Victor. And when on the third day Jesus rose from the dead, he put the eternal exclamation point on his victory declaring that new and everlasting life is given to all who place their trust in Him, think with me about what the resurrection means. It means that the worst event in human history, the crucifixion of the Son of God, resulted in the best event in human history. And if it can happen there, if ultimate evil can result in ultimate good, it can happen anywhere. 
including in your own life. How many of you are familiar with the Lord of the Rings trilogy? Okay. Mostly young people. I want to say to the older folks, it's classic literature. Okay. And it's a wonderful series of movies. It is. There's just a critical and telling scene in that story all intentional as Tolkien wrote those words where Sam Gangee he's a friend of Frodo he's one of the fellowship where he learns that Gandalf is not dead as they all had assumed Gandalf their beloved leader and And a Christ-like figure in the story was very much alive and now glorified. And 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 when Sam sees Gandalf again, he says to him, I thought you were dead. And then he says, I thought I was dead. And then he asks this powerful question. Is everything sad? going to come untrue? Christ's resurrection answers that question with a resounding yes. His resurrection brings assurance and hope to know that your present sufferings, whatever they are, do not have final say. A better day is coming, a day when all suffering will cease, a day not just of consolation, but full restoration. We usually, think about this, we usually picture God taking us up into heaven, taking us from this world up into heaven. But have you ever looked closely at how Revelation 21 pictures it? Revelation 21 pictures heaven coming down to earth where God renews cleanses perfects this fallen world one day God will wipe every tear from your eye death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore God we're told is making all things new where everything sad is going to come untrue for the victory is sure it's already won and it is ours in Christ So certain, I love this, so certain is Christ's triumph. Notice how Jesus talks about it in verse 33, as if it had already occurred. I have overcome. Not that, not that he, he might or even that he one day will, but that he already did. Though he had not yet suffered the cross, had not yet vanquished the tomb, it was in the perfect and gracious will of God already a done deal. And it is for us too. And Jesus offers these words to them, to us, for comfort For our assurance, 
for hope. So we have a world of tribulation. We have, we have a Savior who triumphs. And then we have a call to trust in Him. Sometimes, my dad and I were talking about this just this week. Sometimes we think we must ignore our sorrows. Or we must take a stiff upper lip to our, star- our sorrows. We sometimes think that our sorrows are unwanted and unwelcome, unwanted and unwelcomed, that they are burdensome to others and even to God. We sometimes believe, don't we? We, we sometimes believe that, that trusting God means suppressing our sorrows. As if we can't trust God and be sorrowful at the same time. But the Bible, don't miss this, the Bible teaches otherwise. And so we have the Psalms, for example, that are just full of these moments when sorrow overtakes the psalmist. We have a whole book in the Bible, the book of Lamentations, that is full of lament. We know that, that Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet, that Job suffered immensely, that the people of God as a whole knew affliction and distress very well. And Jesus himself, we're told, by taking our sorrow, by taking upon himself our suffering, we're told Jesus himself was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So rather than sidestepping the sorrow these men were facing, Jesus addressed it head on and he helped them through it. And he helps you too. Jesus is with you. He is with you even at the lowest places of your life, though it may not seem like it at the time. I think this week I thought of Corey Ten Boom and that famous quote, right? That Corey Ten Boom that from the depths of a Nazi death camp, she famously said, no matter how deep our darkness, he is deeper still. Jesus comes and says to each one of us, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. How many of you would like to have peace today? What things had he said? There were things that had yet to occur but assuredly did occur and and will occur because God has ordained them to occur with one great promise after another. Jesus gave them hope of a far better future. So 
Even just in, in uh, the upper room discourse, chapter 13, he, having washed their feet, he assured them of his love and commitment. In chapter 14, he assured them of a place in heaven and that he would get them there to be with them forever. He assured them of the Holy Spirit who would help them throughout all their days of their lives. In chapter 15, he assured them of a fruitful and fulfilling life, the abundant life as they abide in him. In chapter 16, he assured them of a fruitful and fulfilling ministry in the Spirit, despite the world's opposition and hatred. And, and here in this final section of chapter 16, he assured them that their sorrow, though very real, would, would not simply be replaced by joy, but actually turned into joy. All these, all these things, he promised to give them hope. A hope filled future intended to help them in the present Christ's peace okay we raise our hands I'd like peace please Christ's peace is a gift to be received and it rests in and relies on the promises of God I'd like peace. Please help me. How do I do that? It is a gift to be received. As you rest in and rely on God's promises. I've said these things. Jesus is speaking here. I've said these things about your future so that in me you may have peace today. See what's happening here? I've said these things to you about your future so that in me you'll have peace right now. In me. In me you'll have peace. In me. Now, now let's think about this. When you become a Christian, God places you in Christ. By God's grace, you are forever united to Jesus and hidden in Jesus. Positionally speaking, your place with God is secure. Your standing before God is secure. Your relation to God is secure because you are in Christ. But as true and wonderful as that is, and it is, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I don't think he's thinking in positional terms only. When he speaks of peace here, I'm thinking, I don't think he's thinking positional, but practical. He's talking about our practical experiences of his peace in the everyday circumstances of our lives. The emphasis here, hear this, is not peace with God, but peace with life that comes from being at peace with God. You see that? That is so important to see. It's not just peace with God. It's peace with life that comes from being at peace with God.
But the gift is enjoyed only insofar as it is received. It's only as we depend on Jesus, only as we abide in Jesus, only as we look to Jesus to experience his peace. That's that's exactly what Jesus means when he urges here to take heart. Take heart. This isn't complicated. To take heart is to take to heart all that Jesus has said. It's to internalize these promises and act upon them personally. And so I did a word search. Where is this where is this 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 instruction to take heart? Where else is this used? Where else is it used specifically in the New Testament? To the paralytic to the paralytic who was brought to Jesus by his friends. Remember? To the paralytic who's brought to Jesus by his friends, Jesus said, take heart. Your, your sins are forgiven. And then to the bleeding woman, remember? The bleeding woman suffered immensely, a prolonged suffering for 12 years, I think. Prolonged suffering. And what does she do? She, she literally, she's like crawling and elbowing, army crawling her way to Jesus just to touch the hem of his robe. And when he, when he noticed her, when he felt her, he turned to her and he says, take heart, woman, take heart. Your faith has made you well. And then to the disciples that, that night when they're on the sea and, and, and the wind is raging and they see Jesus coming across the water and they think he's a ghost. And, G, and, and, and Jesus says to them, take heart, my friends. It's, it's just me. It's me. You know, this, this idea, this encouragement to take heart meant everything for Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, that blind beggar, he was, he was, uh, he was desperate. He was just in desperate straits. And, and when he hears, he can't see, right? So when he hears Jesus is nearby, he starts calling out for mercy in desperation. And Jesus heard his cry. And he called him forth. And the disciples said to Bartimaeus, Take heart, as Jesus restored his sight. And in these words, to take heart, we see him again in Acts 23. Paul is being held by the Roman council, he is under the threat of death. He is basically kind of kept in a holding cell until the trial is, has come to conclusion. And so we put ourselves in that place and we just feel like, is this it? Is this the end of me? I'm in, I, 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 everybody wants to kill me. And I'm in this holding cell. Paul is in this holding cell. When Jesus himself comes to him and says, Paul, take heart, take heart. God still has 
more ministry for you. Take heart. And what do all these have in common? What they have in common is that each person, each one, the paralytic, the bleeding woman, the disciples, Bartimaeus, the Apostle Paul, each person deeply distressed took heart and took to heart what Jesus had said to them. Whatever they sorrow, whatever their sorrow, they took Jesus at his word, they took hold of his promise, and by taking hold of his promise, they trusted in him and they found peace. Will you trust him again this morning? I'd like peace, please. Will you trust him this morning? You know, there's an old, there's an old chorus that goes, um, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his beauty and grace. Will you turn from, from just zeroing in, obsessing about, distressing over your circumstance? It's not, to, it's not to belittle your circumstance. But will you turn from it, from your cares, to instead look to the one who so cares for you? I love how Tozer put it. He called this the gaze of the soul. And he says, the gaze of the soul. He says that faith is the continual gaze of a soul upon a saving God. He, he said, when we lift our inward eyes to gaze upon God, oh, we are sure to meet friendly eyes gazing back at us. For it is written that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout all the earth. And then he concludes, when the eyes of the soul looking out meet the eyes of God looking in, heaven has begun right there on earth. May we look unto Jesus again this morning the author and perfecter of our faith. Because Jesus has overcome a fallen and sin-ravaged world. We, you, me, we can have peace that surpasses all earthly understanding and sustains you through every trial and tribulation. Will you look to Jesus and take to heart all that he has said? Amen.
God, thank you for the time we've shared this morning. Please continue to minister to us as only you can. Please continue to wean us from this uh, subtle self-reliance that so plagues us where we so often try to take matters into our own hands and usually end up making it worse. Will you help us to trust you in the moments where trust is needed most? Will, Will you help us to actually apply this call to trust in practical ways throughout our day that when we're prone and tempted to, to turn from you or to, to obsess or fix our gaze on the cares of this world that we would instead turn to the one who cares for us. We bless you. Thanks for, for meeting and blessing us this morning. Amen.